0: That is not in my power. Not in my power. Oh, Oh, look, you spoke
1: the words and magically it happened. Oh,
0: look, I say it and it happens. Isn't that (laughs) funny?
1: Hello, I'm Kimberly Adams. Welcome back to Make Me Smart, where we make today make sense.
0: I'm Kyle Rizdahl. This is, of course, What Do You Want to Know? Wednesday, where we answer questions that you our faithful and loyal listeners have sent in. If you've got a question about the economy or business or technology... Send it to us, smart at marketplace.org, or you can leave us a voicemail, 508 eight U B smart We will get right to it with our first question. Go. Hi, Kai and Kimberly. This is Alan from Baltimore, Maryland. And after the election, I'm wondering, why do we care about polls so much? Every cycle... Ha. There's a lot of conversation about the polls leading in, what they mean, what they don't mean. The day after, there's all the conversation about why they were wrong or why they were right or (laughs) why one poll was better than another. Mm -hmm. Why do we care at all? Thanks for making me smart. Over to you, once and former Chief Washington correspondent (laughs) for Marketplace, the public radio program on business and the economy. Go.
1: Technically, my title is still Senior Washington Correspondent, oh, it? And I right. will continue okay. to All claim right. that. <laughs> there you go. Um, yes, I have so many thoughts and feelings about this, but before we get to mine, we talked to Dr. Sunshine Hillegas about this question, and she's a professor of political science at Duke University, which means she actually knows about this stuff. And she said that when polls are done well, they can act as a voice of the public. They can be used to inform lawmakers about what people believe and how they feel, and You know, that can help the public better understand each other as well. Like, if you know what the rest of the country is thinking, roughly, it might help you kind of understand maybe your idea isn't as popular as you thought it was. And maybe there are more people who don't think the way that you do than you previously expected. However... Polls are a scientific thing that are not always done scientifically, so they can be poorly done and misused and taken out of context or presented with not enough information and context with them so that you know where to put them sort of in the larger scheme of things. Now, when we're talking about pre-election polling Specifically, it's notoriously fuzzy. It often has this narrow focus on the horse race, which can take attention away from the polls that might tell us what the public thinks and cares about. Plus, there's a ton of guesswork in pre-election polling because you're trying to sort of approximate the population with the people who you call. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, good luck getting a millennial or Gen Z to answer the phone from an unknown number.
0: (laughs) Yeah. yeah. B, you
1: kind of leave out people who maybe – there are a lot of people who don't have smartphones or sometimes even access to a phone on a regular basis. Believe it or not, this is a true thing. And it in the polls that are done online, you're pretty much leaving off everybody who's not very online. And so it's extra difficult to get a representative sample of America. And I mean I remember when we were running our own polls here – I learned for the first time that what's considered a representative sample of the United mm-hmm. States, which is usually around sorry, hit the mic, usually around a thousand yeah. people, is not a large enough sample to adequately poll to break out Asian Americans, as in one of the fastest hmm. growing ethnic groups in the country, because, you know, they represent something like five or six percent of the United States. And in a poll of a thousand people, you know, that's what, like 50, 60 people, and you can't do any meaningful breakdown from there because it's Mm -hmm. a relatively small number of people. Um, Pew Research has a really good article on this, which I can dig up and send to Marissa so she can put it in the show notes. Anywho, Mm. so there is a lot of guesswork in pre-election polling because pollsters don't know who's actually going to show up to vote. The sample can be really skewed, and so they end up weighting some groups more than others if they think they don't have enough of them. And you can get the wrong idea. You can get information that isn't always useful or isn't always in context, and also I just think we have to take polls with a grain of salt because the polling industry is a for-profit industry. Often the same companies running polls are, you know, doing political campaign work for these campaigns. So they have a vested interest in selling campaigns and news organizations polls (laughs) so that we have something to talk about. So polls can help. You know, understand what's happening in the country, but not necessarily predict what's going on in the country. So those are my thoughts and feelings on polls.
0: Yeah, I no, I know. I'm I'm just super glad I'm super glad you ended with the whole grain of salt thing because that's that's the you have to be you have to apply critical thinking skills when you read polls. Right? You just do And
1: please pay attention to the do. margin of error and believe that it really yep. can go in either direction.
0: Yeah. Totally Okay, next up,
1: we've got a call asking about what led to today's extra high inflation.
0: Hello, this is Gero from White Lake, Michigan. My understanding of inflation is that it's too much money chasing too few goods and services. And I can get that, especially with the COVID incentive payments that they've made the last few years. Now I want to go back a few more years, years earlier to the 2017 tax cuts. How much do they have mm-hmm. a factor in the current inflation rate compared to the COVID payments? Please make mm-hmm. me smart. Thank you. Well, uh, I will give you my off-the-cuff answer, and then we'll tell you what the experts say. So my off-the-cuff answer is, <laughs> yeah, not so much. But but we did reach out to an actual trained economist. I'm not one. I just play one on the radio. His name is Mark Zandi. Mm-hmm. He's the chief economist at Moody's Analytics. You've heard him certainly on Other public radio programs and ours as well. And here's what he said. So, uh, it was the Tax Cut and Jobs Act, right? The 2017 tax cuts. Um, It did... They did uh, support growth in 2018 when inflation was not a huge deal. But right now... Not so much because it has been too long. It's been almost five years, four and a half years now, since those things have been in effect, and they've kind of worked their way through the system. Also, on the COVID checks, and and this is where Zandi's thinking also lines up with mine, shockingly enough, um, those COVID payments that came in the early days of the pandemic and and even Biden's uh, payments in March of last year, uh, while they— perhaps supported higher prices back then originally that's not what's going on with inflation right now inflation right now is still largely a residue of the pandemic of messed up supply chains increased consumer demand and are changing consumer habits between goods now and services so the short answer to the question is 2017 tax cuts not so much covid payments uh while originally yes they were a factor now not so much at all that's my that's my spiel
1: and a promo for Amy Scott, who did a story earlier this yep. year about just why it's so hard to pin down the exact causes of inflation. Because, of course, as we've talked about here, there's also that whole camp that blames corporate profits for inflation. Yep. Um yeah. Whenever we were, I was getting ready for the show today, and I looked at this. It reminded me of when we were all waiting for the language of the tax cuts and jobs act to drop, and uh, I was in LA. And do you remember how we came up with the uh, open of the show together? <laughs>
0: Oh my God! I I don't know what are we what are we do. So doing? it
1: was so we we all saw that it came the language came down, and I was like, "You get a tax cut! You get a tax cut! You oh, get yeah. a tax cut!" Because <laughs> everyone, yeah. Yeah. and it felt yeah, like a totally. very Oprah moment because we had all been thinking that maybe one group would get tax cuts and another group wouldn't, and would this group get tax cuts at the expense of somebody mm-hmm. else, and then it was like, "No, let's just do it for everyone!" <laughs> you know, screw the yeah. screw the national debt.
0: Totally. <laughs> You get a tax cut and you get a tax cut. Anyway, that's that's uh, that's the tax cuts and the COVID payments. Um, email yes. from Ben in Nebraska. I'm going to guess this is not Ben Sass, the sitting senator from Nebraska, <laughs> now looking for a new job down in Florida. But anyway, sorry, a little inside joke there. Uh, here's what Ben says. I've been telling people in my Omaha subreddit that they should run for the unicameral. That is to say the unicameral legislature in, Nevada, in Nebraska, which is the only state that has a unicameral, one-chamber legislature. He goes on to say they reply that the pay is is only $12,000 a year. This seems wrong. Is this common in state legislatures? Hmm.
1: I did not know this until today, so thank you, Ben, for making us smart. Uh, but yeah, it's correct. According to the National Conference of State Legislatures, lawmakers in Nebraska earn $12,000 a year, which puts them among the nation's lowest paid sl- state legislators. Um, and this has been an issue for many years. In fact, Nebraska lawmakers haven't received a raise since 1988, mainly because voters don't mm. particularly love <laughs> giving raises to politicians. And uh, that's according to the AP. Nationwide, uh, the wages for state lawmakers vary a lot. You've got Nebraska down at that low end. California, state lawmakers can make a full-time salary of up to Mm $120,000 a year. It's the highest paying state in the U.S. New Mexico's legislators don't even earn a salary, but they're paid like a per diem of $161 per day when they're in session. And also some state legislatures are full-time, some are part-time, and some only meet for a certain certain portion of the year. And so all that factors into how much... They're paid. But all this adds up to say that in many parts of the country, state legislators have other jobs to make up that income. And, you know, sometimes it can be difficult for them to find another job that allows them to take Mm -hmm. time off during the year to do all of this work of legislating, especially to do a good job and talk to constituents and things like that. And that blocks a lot of working class people from being lawmakers or running for seats, which means you kind of have to like be independently wealthy or own your own business or, you know, I guess get your money from somewhere else to afford to be in public service which kind of sucks um and whether or not yeah. lawmakers can give themselves a pay raise i mean usually it's not in their hands usually it's like the governor or the voters or, or somebody like that has to you know do that We don't often give the people the power to raise their own paycheck
0: paychecks <laughs> yeah uh okay Next, one more. We got time for one more. Yeah, next up, we yeah
1: uh, yeah yeah, we do. Next time, we have an email from Anna, who was a Twitter shareholder before Elon Musk bought the company, and she asks, "How can the company go from being public to being private without getting consent from all of the stockholders?"
0: Great, great question. So, first of all, Anna, I really hope that you took the fifty-four dollars and twenty cents per share that Elon Musk was going to offer to pay you because even on the day that deal closed, it didn't get to fifty-four twenty. So you'd have been in the money. Um, anyway, so look, here's the deal. First of all, uh, when a company goes private, uh, all the sh- not all the shareholders, a majority of shareholders, have to vote to approve that sale or the decision to go private. And that is exactly what happened in the Musk case, right? The uh, Musk made his offer, Twitter shareholders voted, and some overwhelming percentage of them said, yes, we do want to do that. Now, here's the deal. The, the the tender offer was at $54.20 a share, and most people took that offer, but you didn't have to take the offer. There's no requirement that forces you to sell your shares. What Musk did was he had to buy 50% plus one of the company to have control, and that's what he did. He bought the vast majority of it. If you sold, then you're out, you're done. You took your 54.20 per share, and you went off to the racetrack or whatever you did, put it in the bank, college fund, whatever, right? If you decided not to sell because you didn't have to sell, then you are still an owner of Twitter. Congratulations now, I think. But you don't really have any power because Elon Musk has 98% of the shares. So you missed your moment. But you don't have to sell, right? Those shares are just taken off the market. They are not traded on the New York Stock Exchange. Twitter has been delisted from the NYSE. Right. So you still have a piece of paper that says you own a slice of Twitter, but that slice of Twitter is now decreasing in value every single day that Elon Musk is in charge. That's what happens.
1: I mean, and it also matters like, how did you hold Twitter stock? Was it in a mutual fund? Because more than likely, that mutual fund jumped in on that $54 and and you got that too. And, you know, and also yep. a lot of those shareholders were Twitter, Twitter employees who were like, absolutely, because they wanted yep. those payouts. So, uh, yeah, I, I also hope you got that higher value because it's not it's not looking so good totally. right now. Totally. Um, I'm looking yep. at this Twitter thread that uh, Stephanie Seek posted in uh, one of our Slack channels about the latest iteration of the wildness going on at Twitter, where Elon Musk sent out this email today. Saying or maybe it was yesterday saying that, you know, everybody needed to be willing to work long hours and be really hardcore or else just take the severance and go away. And there's mm-hmm. this uh, employment lawyer who's like walking through all of the ways that the email breaks labor laws.
0: <laughs> yeah, just, yeah, it's just it's oh boy. I just oh boy. The, the I don't whatever. Never mind. We don't need to go into that just forget it.
1: <laughs> yes, lest we give more fodder to all of the angry Elon yeah. Musk supporters who are already coming after us on Twitter. Uh, anyway, that's it for us today on this What Do You Want to Know Wednesday. We'll be back tomorrow to make you smart on the news of the day. Hopefully make you smile as well.
0: In the meanwhile, comments, questions, objections, whatever, send them to us. Our email is at marketplace.org. Leave us a voicemail 508 smart.
1: Make Me Smart is produced by Marissa Cabrera and Courtney Burke-Seeker. Alan Rolfus writes our newsletter.
0: Juan Carlos Dorado was in charge today down in the studios downtown Los Angeles. Ben Tallade and Daniel Ramirez composed our theme music. Bridget Bodner is, she tells us, working on a new season of Million Bazillion right now. Donna Tam Mm -hmm. is, for a little while longer anyway, the director of On Demand.
1: Don't worry, y'all. She's not leaving. She's got a
0: promotion. No. She got kicked upstairs.